Joel, I'm working on six different time zones today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the way it's been for the last two or three weeks. Uh, all around the world, we're getting phone calls and Zoom calls, uh, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. It, it it does add up for a small business when you're dealing with so many time zones. Oh, man, I was I was thinking before when before you hopped on here today, and I was we were talking. I was I have talked through four today, and I thought I was busy. And you're over here with six different time zones under your belt, and, and it's it's not even dark yet. Yeah, it's not dark. I, I still have time. Australia will be calling here in a minute. There you go. You're up to seven. Lucky number seven. Number seven. There it is. I think I've set the record at least for this week. There you go. Well, we have a lot of wind energy news this week. Uh, the big wind in America is that a wind turbine tipped over in Illinois. Well, that's the, a big talking point, I'm not sure, but it is all the rage on LinkedIn, so we'll, t- we'll talk about it. Uh, more importantly, uh, Keystone and GE connect on the spiral steel towers, and that's something I have been waiting for for a, another, a year or two, and I'm just a onlooker, but I think that's a really cool project. We'll jump over to SenseWind and we're going to talk about uh, this company coming out of the UK that is doing something like a, basically a, cli- a self-erecting tower or Alan during the episode has his own um, new term for this tower technology. Uh, and then we'll speak about the Netherlands uh, accusing Russia of spying on some of their offshore wind farms. Uh, not sure why or how. Uh, Google Earth is your friend to find this stuff out, but the Russians are in that corner of the world, uh, peeking around. Also, um, touching again on some tower technology, uh, we speak a little bit about the first monopile that's on its way to Vineyard Wood One uh, off the co- east coast of the U.S. So that's happening now. And then uh, to close out the episode, uh, our new uh, feature is the Wind Farm of the Week. Um, we're going to talk about the Black Rock Wind Farm in West Virginia and what they're doing over there with the new five megawatt Siemens Gamesa machines. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum. And the soon-to-be guest host of Fully Charged Live, Rosemary, isn't here today, but she'll be back next week. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Joel, officials for RWE Renewables uh, are investigating what caused one of their wind turbines to fall over at its Pioneer Trail wind farm up in Illinois. Uh, The turbine was taken offline earlier because it was leaning. And if you looked on LinkedIn or social media, you would have seen this turbine pretty much everywhere. Uh, And this is the first time, according to RWE, that this has ever happened. Uh, And they have 30 plus wind farms across the U.S. and several thousand turbines at this point. Uh, That wind farm began operation in 2011, 94 turbines, uh, GE 1.6 megawatt machines. And Joel, the pictures you and I saw on LinkedIn there was a drone that had gone over top of the site and it looked like the concrete pad had failed. When I first saw this thing leaning, I was thinking, man, being deep into the kind of the wind turbine world here, just in the States, but globally as well, you see blade failures and you see generator failures or gearbox failures, but you don't see very many foundation failures. And and then I started kind of thinking about it. I'm like, well, I wonder why that is. And kind of like my engineering mind started running and I was thinking, 
you know, it's really actually kind of surprising. You don't see more of these issues because, because, you know, concrete, uh, you know, mixing concrete and steel and all these different mechanisms together and engineering it and different soil conditions and all this stuff like it, that's, that's, it's, it's a science, right? But it's the same thing as the blades or anything else. When it comes to the engineering world, there's some, there's some art to it too, you know, like, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're pouring these foundations in West Texas, it's completely different than if you're pouring them in Illinois with all the, all the, um, you know, organic soils and the different mechanisms of soil movement and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you get in some areas, Oklahoma regularly has a lot of little, you know, 4.0, 3.0 earthquakes. So it's kind of surprising that you don't see uh, more of these, these issues with some foundations. Yeah, it is. And the last time I think we talked about one was up in Canada, probably a year ago. They had a couple of, of they had a turbine tip over, and then they started checking all the pads, and they had uh, an issue on, on multiple pads, and they were going to have to repour them, I assume, or try to address them in some way, which would have been uh, an exciting time up there. This this situation is it seems to be a one off right now, and uh, the, the key to this little news story is that it comes at a time when Illinois is in a lot of um, back and forth between the state officials and the county officials and local officials. Uh, the state of Illinois passed a, a law recently, which basically all the siting and regulation standards for wind turbines and solar facilities are controlled at the state level. So if your or local ordinances do not match the state, then the state rules apply. So basically, it took all the power away from the local counties and took it to the state. And that exists everywhere in Illinois except for Chicago and the surrounding area. So that did not go over well with a, a lot of the officials in, in Illinois. It's frustrating, right? Like, so I'm, you know, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, I'm from Wisconsin originally. So in Wisconsin, we have kind of the same political, I'm not going to say the same because I don't want to say we're the same as Illinois, but the same kind of like concentrated power. As Illinois does, right? So you have the city of Chicago, which Chicago is not even the capital, right? But a lot of the power resides in Chicago, much like in Wisconsin, a lot of the power resides in Madison or Milwaukee. So you have these couple of strongholds that tend to control or have, you know, their word about everything in the state. Now, if you look at Illinois as a state, the, the, where a lot of the rules and regulations and legislation comes from is a very minority uh position in the state. The rest of it is, is it's agricultural land. It's, it's conservative people out there that are kind of angry anyways about their lives being run by someone that, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, twofold here. So I believe that, you know, when we're talking foundations for wind farms, there is some, you know, overarching uh, engineering principles that should be applied. And, you know, ASCE or ASCME laws or, or regulations or, or guidelines for, at the state level or or um, even national level for some of these things are, are okay, right? So, um, you know, there's things that don't change within this. We know that the reason we put steel in concrete is because the coefficient of thermal expansion of steel is the same as concrete or close to the same as concrete, right? We, we have these rules around these things and the way they're done, but um, taking that power away from the local government. I mean, I, I'm a fan of small government, so um, I don't really like to see that. Yeah, and it, it, if you're a wind turbine operator, it's a really difficult mix at the moment because um, there's been a lot of more recent interactions between 
went to operators and developers and the and the local officials uh, and a lot of confusion between the two. And it's it's hard if you're the developer to navigate all these things because you got local people who probably don't know that much about wind turbine installations, what's all going on, and you have the state that's involved and all their authority, and you're just trying to get a wind turbine project off the ground. <laughs> it seems like it takes a couple of years to get it done. So I'm assuming that the Illinois legislature decided to make this move because uh, the movement at the local level wasn't where they wanted it. And the, the way I kind of look at it is it's the United States of America. It's not the United Counties of America. So the state government has a lot of authority over their own state. The problem in some of these areas, like you pointed out, Joel, is kind of like New York, really. New York City and Buffalo control the whole New York uh, state. And it's hard if you're in the middle, which is where the wind turbines are. The wind turbines are not going to be in New York City. They're not going to be necessarily in Buffalo. They're going to be in the middle. You know, and, and at some level, because I, I also agree in the, the, I like free market capitalism, right? So RWE, massive international operator, offshore wind farms in Europe, onshore wind farms. They're a German company, right? They've been around forever. Um They've been around, I think they've been around since, you know, the, the return of the 19th or 20th century. Um, but it's, you have to almost be able to rely on some of their expertise, right? This is, as they have stated here, and as we've stated in watching the market, this isn't a regular thing that happens. This is a, a kind of a freak event, right? So I believe that they'll do a root cause analysis on this case. I don't think it'll be from from my from my mind and looking at the pictures, it looks like there's something off there with the concrete. Like there might have been a a cold joint or a bad mix or some a bad slump in the in the pour or something at that stage or some cracks. You know, the, a freeze thaw level and some water ingress got in there. There's something goofy there. They'll do a root cause analysis study. They'll figure out what it is. They may do some 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 penetrating you know. Uh, penetrating radar NDT tests or something on some other foundations and within that wind farm, they'll figure out what the problem is and they'll, and they'll rectify it. I've got uh, utmost confidence in that. Um, so the people that are saying, well, maybe we need to have more oversight on these things. I think that just slows down um, our energy transition. If you try to do that. Yeah. I kind of look at it this way. You know, there was the train accident in East Palestine, Ohio, that led to the chemical spill, then the, then the chemical burn which is one train accident. And when that happened, the response out of the federal, federal government was, well, there's a thousand train derailments a year. Why is this one any different? Like, okay, that's not a really good answer. In this particular case, it's like the opposite. We have one turbine fall over because of something wrong with the pad, but it was designed such that if something were to happen, it wasn't a safety issue, right? Uh, <laughs> it didn't just immediately fall over one and two. It's like, there's nothing around it. Right. So it, it's not like that train explosion. I, I just see the just wildly different responses. The train was like, oh, hum. <laughs> but the wind term was like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. Those, those don't equate. They don't have to equate, but it, it just calm down a little bit. Right. It's one wind turbine. RDB is going to figure it out. They're going to have this thing identified in the next two weeks, probably if they haven't done it already. And, you know, they're going to move on. Good. That's the way a good engineering company should do. Yeah, it shows that, the you know, the, the wind, that wind energy and the, and the clean energy transition is a bipartisan hot button issue. That's what it shows, right? If you look, I mean, you got a, a cloud of vinyl chloride in the air that you got people that can't return their house because their lungs are burning. 
And they, oh, no, trains are okay. We'll go back. Like, that's fine. Don't worry about that. And, and then you have this and there's a big blow up about it. Like, it, it's, it fell into a cornfield or something, right? Like, it didn't harm anybody. And it's designed that way. It's, it's not going to fall in a house or fall near anybody. Like, you can't sight wind turbines that close to dwell or, you know, buildings anyways. Right. Right. Which is the point, right? The engineers are to be wouldn't have let that happen in the first place. They wouldn't. But a huge wind turbine next to an apartment complex. That's just not, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. I don't want any of the listeners to think that it's not like we're saying this isn't a big deal or anything like, yeah, of course it's an issue, right? We're going to, you know, and as an industry and as a collective and RWE as a company, they're going to, they're going to figure it out. You know, they're, I'm sure they're, there's going to be a bunch of subject matter experts involved in this thing. And, and when issues like this happen, then we dive in as engineers, we learn from them and we apply the fixes in the future generations. So it's not that it's not a big idea or, or a big issue. It's just what we're trying to, I, I guess, communicate around here or talk about is uh, the the response to it from the governments. Yeah, which is going to be a success at the end of the day. They're going to figure it out and it's going to be resolved. All right, so one of my favorite projects over the last year or two has been the people at Keystone Tower Systems and their spiral welded tower because it, it is sort of an industry changer. Uh, well, they've been working behind the scenes and we've asked them to come to the podcast uh but evidently they've been too busy. But Keystone Tower Systems and GE Renewable Energy uh, had a milestone with their spiral welded tower as it was used on a 2.8 megawatt GE machine, a 2.8127 turbine. And it's a combination of a multi-year effort between GE and Keystone to design and produce spiral welded towers for GE turbines. Uh, The roughly 90 meter tower was manufactured at Keystone's factory in Pampa, Texas, and Joel, Pampa, Texas is up in the panhandle of Texas, which is pretty much as far north as you can get in Texas. And that they, they hope to create a, a 200 uh, new manufacturing jobs at that factory when they get to full capacity. Full capacity, uh, they're talking about one gigawatt of towers per year. So if they're, you know, it's 200, well, it's 400 towers a year, roughly. Uh, that's a lot of towers to make. And, and you and I were talking beforehand, Joel, and we thought that the, the, one of the keys to the Keystone <laughs> effort was that it was going to be mobile, a mobile platform, that they could build these towers wherever they were needed. But in this particular case, it's a fixed site, sort of in the central United States. So you think of Texas being pretty far south, but the Panhandle actually is kind of north. It's right next to Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. It's right there in the middle of everything. It's probably a smart place for a factory, right? Yeah, to be honest with you, Pampa. I mean, uh, that area of the of the country near Amarillo and some of those other small, um, you know, lot of cotton farmers and stuff up there. Like those two hundred jobs are going to be amazing for that area. What an ec- an economic boom, right? It's huge, and it's not. I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know technical capabilities that go into producing these, but they're not so deep that it's like it's not the aerospace industry, right? Where you got to have all these technical, like h- highly technical skills. A lot of these jobs will be soaked up like that. So it's great. Another thing about that corner of the world is there's a lot of rail over there too, right? And your your Oklahoma's right there, Kansas is right there, uh, Eastern Colorado, New Mexico. Um, and yeah, and you've got rail all the way straight shots up to Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, uh, Minnesota. So Wyoming, I mean, you've got, um, it's a great spot. Plus like, like we were talking about, taking advantage of those Texas tax laws. Um, and then Right now, great time to build a factory because you can take uh, take advantage of ITC, 
And you know, as P as PTC goes, ITC goes as well. So now you've now you're getting some credits back from your or tax credits back from our federal government for starting manufacturing jobs in a manufacturing facility in the United States. So um, it's it, you know we thought it was going to be on site. Maybe it still will. Maybe this will be a staging area. We don't know. Um, but um, cool to see it happening because we talked about it. Uh, you know, some months back. This is what they're you know kind of putting out there as an idea. But now it's reality. They've installed one. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's good. And the Keystone is still working on the, the mobile factory concept. But Keystone and GE are also collaborating on the GE 3 megawatt turbine platform. And they have signed a multi-year ag agreement to make Sparrow Towers out of that Pampa factory. There you go. There's a great quote here, and I, I want to read this quote quickly. Uh, quote, this collaboration with Keystone is an example of GE's commitment to working with partners to bring new and innovative technology to the wind industry and advance domestic manufacturing, uh, said Vic Abate, GE's Renewable Energy CEO, Onshore Wind. Uh, we're delighted to be part of this exciting opportunity for our workforce products, or sorry, our workhorse products, and the, with the goal of providing affordable, sustainable, renewable energy to our customers and helping to deliver on the energy transition. So I, I think the tax implications are pretty clear here, Joel. I mean, GE is going to try to use as many American manufacturers as they can because those credits are in place. So why not? Thanks to GE for bringing some of those jobs back, right? Like, so we're constantly talking on the podcast here about wanting to see more um, American companies involved in wind, whether it be from the manufacturing side, the aftermarket side, whatever it may be. So Keystone being one of those new companies, starting up a factory, adding jobs and uh, bringing some American efforts uh, to the energy transition here is great. Yeah. We, as we were talking earlier also, the spiral tower must be a pretty big game changer in either terms of uh, cost of the final tower or speed of manufacturing towers. It's one or the other. Uh, GE doesn't tend to mess around with things that only minor improvements in the way they do business. So this Keystone effort must have some underlying good economics and GE's going to push it forward. That's great. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. As we stay on the steel tower business, German company EEW Special Pipe Construction, USPC, that's how you'd pronounce it in America. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's totally an American thing. Uh, manufactures offshore wind monopiles and has completed the heaviest monopile for the first commercial offshore wind farm in the U.S., which is Vineyard Wind. Uh, the monopile is 1,895 tons of steel for Vineyard Wind 1. And if everybody is not familiar with Vineyard Wind 1, that's located about 15 miles from Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket and about 30 or 40 miles from the mainland of Massachusetts, not very far from us. Uh, the comparison that is given in this particular article is a, a fully loaded 747 is only 447 tons. So basically four fully loaded, fully fueled 747s is going to equal the weight of this one model pile. Holy moly. Uh, the monopile has a diameter of 9.6 meters, 
and a length of 85 meters. This is a massive piece of steel, Joel. Uh, and remember that Vineyard Wind is going to have 62 of these 13-megawatt Halley 8X turbines. And it looks like the in December... Uh, wait a minute. In, in December, the first transition pieces were manufactured for Vineyard Wind. So you, you have the monopile, you have the transition piece, and then you've got the turbine that goes on top of it. Uh, but the the transition pieces are being made in S- Spain, being shipped to the United States, and also the cables for this Vineyard Wind project uh, are being made and man- manufactured and tested in Finland and in Italy. So you got a German monopile, you have a Spanish transition piece, and you have cables from Finland and Italy going into the Vineyard Wind. And a- yeah, as it sits right now, the blades are being made in Canada, and where are the where are the nacelles coming from? I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. I I mean, there's 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 an idea for there's idea for. Of course, GE has has put the idea for uh, you know up the river there, putting a nacelle factory and a blade factory in New York, which would be fantastic. But that's not ready yet, right? These are happening now. So so there's not one major component here that we know of, and maybe we're wrong with the nacelles, but there's not one major component we know of right now that's being manufactured in the U.S. And that's frustrating. But that's going to be par for the course for at least the next two years, at least. So I was looking. I was looking at the size of this thing, and I was talking with my better half here yesterday. And I was looking at the eighteen hundred ninety-five ton steel monopod. She's like, "Can you put that into some other context for me?" And I was like, "My truck that sits out in the yard, six six hundred and thirty of those trucks. That's how much it weighs." She was like, "No, yeah." Yeah, it's dead serious. Six hundred and thirty of those pickups, and now this isn't even the part. Like this, this, the this thing here is this isn't even the part that you'll see. Like you won't even see this. This is the stuff that's in the water and pounded into the ground. So that doesn't happen. That's not the tran- the transition piece. When we talk about it, is if you're not not familiar with offshore wind, that's basically like the cage that is set on top of the monopile. So it goes monopiles pounded into the ground. Maybe if you're in 50 meters of water, that monopile might be pounded into the ground another 20. And then the the transition piece will sit on top of it. And then the tower sections are put on top of the transition piece, then the cell spinner blades. So this is a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a lot of work to do this. So the soil testing around these, Joel, it's going to be interesting, right? When I started reading the numbers, like, man, that's a lot of weight for, uh, basically a 10 meter diameter area of, of ground, right? So you stack all these things on top of one another and then it has to not sink further into the, into the earth. Yeah. The geotech, the geo, geotechnical engineers that uh, work in these offshore wind farms are some of the best in the world, man. Um, you know, a lot of times their design will go because there's bedrock down there lots, right? So depending on where you are, you might go <clears throat> say at, at turbine four, there might be 18 meters of, there might be three meters of silt and then 10 meters of, you know, compacted dirt. And then you four meters of something else. And then you hit bedrock. So they'll actually measure this thing. They go right to bedrock and they'll set it right on the bedrock. So that thing can't sink anymore. And they do a, a combination. Sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it's individual of pounding the monopiles. And sometimes they do it with the suction can or at the same time. So if you cap, if you put the, the thing into the mud, the monopile, just like a tube, think of like a paper towel tube, stick that into the mud and then cap it. Then you can put a a water pump on it and basically pump the air and water out of it. And as you do that, it'll suck itself down into the mud. So that's one method of putting in a monopile. The other method is to get on top of it and just 
boom, 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 jackhammer it down into the mud. Yeah, I think that's what's happening. The jackhammer is going to be the way that they're going to do it for vineyard wind. The question is, how do they know how where they're going to bottom out at? How do they figure that out? Do they do core samples? Are they drilling down that far to actually figure out what that depth is? Oh yeah, combination of a combination of core sampling and near surface and near surface seismic. So near surface seismic, think about basically. If you were to get an MRI of your knee after having an ACL surgery or something, and then the doctor pulls up the image and you go like, and they kind of slice through it and they go like, see here is skin, skin, muscle, bone, ligament, blah, 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 blah. Near surface seismic of uh, the seafloor will give you that same profile. And then you compare it with the soil borings or the, you know, the, the weight drop borings or whatever in that area to say, okay, this is, this is what we believe is sand, silt, mud, you know, rocks, whatever, here's the bedrock. So you'll have that, that process data of, uh, basically acoustic sub subsurface imaging, uh, which is the near surface seismic to compare to the geotechnical drilling data. And then that's when they, they can develop that profile. And then the geotechnical engineers hand it off to the structural engineers. And then they Go about their merry way. So every wind farm in America is going to need to have that survey done. Absolutely, and a lot of, a lot of times it will be you'll you'll do you know a geotechnical drilling or borings or soil samplings you know at along the cable routes you have to do it as well. But you'll do one big deep sampling at every pile, monopile, and sometimes they also want to do and this is a this is something not to be missed. They'll also do sometimes an array of geotechnical sampling around each of the monopile locations if they're going to do the installation with a jackup vessel. Because when you're going to install with a jackup vessel, you have to put the legs of the jackup vessel into the seafloor as well. And, and we've seen that if you don't do that geotechnical exploration properly, you can hit air pockets, gas pockets, soft pockets in the mud, as happened in the South China Sea, and the whole jackup vessel can tip over. Did they have not only a jackup vessel, but also... A monopile tip over. Remember that? That was not very long ago, maybe a year ago. They lost the monopile. I don't think that was a that wasn't a soil problem, I don't think. I think they mishandled it. But the the jackup when when the jackup went over, it hit a soft spot in the in the soil. Sometimes you can hit gas pockets or other things like that, or just like where where you thought it was sand and but it's actually like I mean if you've ever walked out into a muddy pond. So, you know, or, you know, I mean, you'll know when you walk in that stuff, you can be up to your knees. Now imagine you're offshore and that layer that's up to your knees in the pond is 40 feet thick. So in the oil gas industry, when they do this work and put these rigs out there, what percentage of them do they have problems with? 1%? Less than one? Less than one. Because they've been there so long in the same basic area? The oil and gas industry has been doing this offshore work for since the you know, 1960s. Now, how much do we know off the East coast of America? Not much. That's the thing, right? So in the, if you go and do this, that's why when we are talking like right now, we just, there was just another notification coming out today. I saw Bureau of Ocean Energy Management pushing forward on that auction area, lease area down in the Gulf of Mexico. We know what the geotechnics look like in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Galveston and Louisiana. We've been out there for Years. I mean, there's there's more oil rigs decommissioned on the shoreline than there is in the in the water, right? They've been there forever, so we know what that sand shelf looks like out to the the Gulf in the Gulf of Mexico and where there's salt domes and where there's gas pockets and stuff because we've been all over there. The east coast of the U.S. 
we know generally, you know, you can look at geophysically sometimes at the surface and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of side scans on our data and stuff up there, but we don't know the in-depth look at it, right? We haven't been doing that near surface seismic and the geotechnical drilling and all that stuff off of the East Coast because we just never have developed anything out there. So there's no, it's expensive, right? It's very expensive. So there's no, there hasn't been a reason to do it besides... Uh, as long as we know what the bathymetry is, so we know what kind of charting is good, and and uh, you know our U.S. Navy can patrol the the ridge with our submarines without hitting anything, uh, we're we're good there, right? So we have a good view of what's there, and by the by what you see on the the subsurt, like the the seafloor, you can kind of generally know what the subsurface found, you know, is going to look like. Geotechnically, like like a, a smart geophysicist will know when you look at the mountain ranges in Denver. Well, the front range of Denver, which is or or Colorado, the front range, which is that all that area behind Denver, behind Colorado Springs, as you go off into the plains, they know that there's going to be oil and gas there because the organic material has been rolled over as those mountains formed and all this stuff. These are things we know, right? So looking in at the at the seafloor, we kind of know what might be out there, but we don't have that granular detail. So now we have to go do all these studies, and it's like I said, it's it's, it's time consuming. It's expensive. So you're not just going to go do it for fun. Are we going to hit oil with one of these model piles? Kind of like the clampets? No. Now off of the west coast, that's possible, but off the east coast, I don't think so. Well, that, that explains the Beverly Hillbillies, right? There you go. It's the next generation of the Beverly Hillbillies. I hope that nobody nobody pops into an oil pocket when they're out there doing geotech for offshore wind. That would be a disaster. That'd be a bad day. Well, Dutch authorities uh, had a press conference recently, and they accused Russia of spying on their assets, quote-unquote assets, including uh, the Netherlands offshore wind farms as part of a broader effort to potentially sabotage European infrastructure. Uh, so the, the Dutch Ministry of Defense and other intelligence agencies, um, well, since 2022, are have been monitoring Russian ships, and in particular, they want to be really careful around those gas pipelines and any other um, sort of national resource that could be a target. Uh, this comes on a recent report from the Dutch. Um, that they're going to expel 10 Russian diplomats. <laughs> so, so yeah, so yeah, which happens more often than you would think, but so they expelled these dipl diplomats and then it sounds like there are some Russian ships around. They're kind of snooping around, whatever that means. Uh, but for several months, uh, you know, the Dutch have been watching Russian vessels, what looks like collecting data on the offshore wind farms off of Netherlands. And other countries have been aware of this too. Uh, Norway has, has seen unauthorized drones near some of its oil platforms. Denmark and the UK have in, increased security around some of their more sensitive assets. Uh, and Joel, when I, you and I talked about this a day or so ago, because I thought it was a little amusing in the sense that Russia knows where your wind turbines are. They're not moving. <laughs> Any kind of Google search will tell you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, lo I'm looking at a map of like basically every wind farm in Northern Europe right now that's free for sea offshores. They're owned by TGS as a company. I'm, I'm looking at it right now going like, because I was thinking to myself, I know a couple of wind farms offshore in the Netherlands. I'm like, how many really are they? Pull it up. Boom. I can see every single one of them in a free database. Like it's, I don't need to be 
the KGB to figure this out. No, it's it's not good if Russian ships are trolling the area and and uh, you know trying to raise the angst of the whoever Defense Department. That's that's just not good. But to think that they don't know where the wind turbines are, or if they wanted to knock some wind turbines out, it wouldn't it wouldn't take much to do that. They're just sitting objects. But uh, is is this going to be the future that we're going to have to put barriers around and maybe put perimeters around the wind turbines to say there is no ship entry within these regions. You just can't sail in these waters. What's to stop it, right? So you, you can, you can denote this as a government, you know, do you put a chain link fence in the water? Mine it? Yeah, you could mine it, I suppose. But you, but you're in, you're introducing so much more risk to the general public. If, if, Russians or anybody wants to sabotage any one of these wind farms, it's not hard, right? It's not very difficult to find where the interconnector cables are. And it's like, okay, so the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that happened six months ago, they blew up a pipeline. Now, I'm not saying it was Russians, but basically that was in the news and everybody's like, who did it? Who did it? And then it kind of went quiet. Well, someone launched a missile into a, the pipeline and blew a 50 meter crater in the seafloor and destroyed a pipeline going into northern Europe. If someone, if, if someone, I'm saying someone with air quotes, wants to take wind farms offline or anything of the sort, uh, the technology and the capability exists within every navy in the world to go do this tomorrow. There's nothing you can do to stop it besides having your own n- navy protect your assets at sea. I mean, I hope we never get to that stage, uh, you know, of we've seen we've seen um, articles and, and talked about, uh, you know, privately, Alan, about some of the different issues we've had in the U.S. around some of our, you know, critical energy infrastructure and what has happened. Cyber attacks, physical attacks on land like this. is It, it may be something that's a specific attack, but it also might be a couple of, you know, drunk hillbilly redneck buddies out shooting guns we don't know um but that stuff can happen no matter where you are um so so what's to stop it i don't know mobilizing navies and armies and militaries around the world to protect your own assets like i said i hope we don't get to that but this article says that they escorted the russian ship or russian vessel out of the area the dutch navy did um i don't know it seems it seems like it should be almost more inflammatory than it has been made up to be. Like, I don't believe that I should just be reading an article on this. This should be something that we hear about at the UN level. Like, this is a this is a, a bigger problem to me than it's made out to be, I think. Oh, yeah. Everybody's trying to keep a tamp, this tamp down as much as they can. See where it goes. I don't know what you do. Besides instrument, I mean, I, you know, I throw out mine. I'm as, <laughs> this is a stupid possibility. But you would you would think that you may be monitoring around them for sure. Why not? You have nothing to lose to monitor. Okay, so if you're looking at a map, if you're familiar with the North Sea, it, if it's coming from Russia and it's coming through the Baltic Sea, all of our good friends in Denmark know if a submarine or a ship of any type is coming through there because they have to basically go through the straits between Copenhagen and Malmo, and I can I can hit like it's shorter than a golf course across. I was going to say I could hit a couple drivers across it, but I can't. Let's be honest. So, so you know, they could be coming now if they're coming over the top, you know, any kind of Russian submarine or something's coming over the top along the 
the west coast of Norway and then down. That's a little bit different of a story. But there's so much activity in that North Sea that, I mean, you're going to know what's out there. I'm not a naval mastermind, but I don't know. I don't like I don't like the situation. Do you think it changes the way we do offshore wind turbines in America, in the way we def- defend them? No, I don't. You don't think so? No, I don't, because I think that contrary to maybe popular belief, there if you look at a subsea map of the East Coast of the United States, because of what has happened in our past, the Cold War, World War II, all these different things. There has been German U-boats in World War II. There's been Russian submarines in, during the Cold War up all up and down that 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 uh, Atlantic ridge. I, I'm not going to say mid-Atlantic ridge. That's a different thing, but that Atlantic cliff basically that falls off into the, the deeper ocean. I know for a fact that, that those the canyons coming up that ridge and that whole ridge are instrumented so well that we as a country, as a military, will know if there's any kind of threat coming up the coast. Uh, I want to tie this into the whale discussion we just had. So we, just, we put out a podcast last week talking about the whales on the East Coast. If we can monitor for submarines, can we monitor for whales? We can. I think so. You just got to put the effort into it. Are we going to do it? I don't know because I think that if you monitor for whales – Okay, so now we're going to an ROI, right? So you're you're monitoring for whales, or slowing down the U.S. economy. Uh, oh no, okay, I I I get you. I, I get I I totally get you. I get you there. Sure, 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 sure. And someone's making these decisions somewhere, and that's the two things that you're weighing. You're either shutting down the ports on the East Coast when whales are coming through, or you're saving four hundred and thirty North Atlantic right whales eventually. Someone's going to make a business decision. You're saying to follow the money. What I am saying is if I knew where they were, then I could maybe slow down if I were around them, if we had the technology to do it. And the question is, is a submarine make more noise than a whale or is a whale noisier? I bet the whale is actually the more noisier. Of, it makes more noise of the two, probably, right? I fully agree with if we can know where, if we can map and know and understand where the whales are, we can put some measures in place. But if the measure is stop all traffic until they clear, it's never going to happen. Oh, yeah. No, no. Again, I go back to follow the money, which is a shame because we should be able to to do both. Right. We should be able to have a shipping and have whales coexist. There's got to be a way to do that. Where we are right now is not going to last much longer, in my opinion. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Since wind, that's spelled capital S-E-N-S-E, wind, has selected SM Industries uh, to produce a new type of floating wind turbine tower for its flagship two-megawatt onshore demonstration project. Uh, so since wind, if you haven't seen it, has it's this 
sort of uh, rail system to assemble towers and then to put the nacelle on top. So uh, it's what they call the first of its kind triple rail. It's inter it's interesting if you, you can go to SenseWind, uh, I think it's SenseWind.com, and you can see the video there. Uh, so they're going to create this onshore project, demonstrate that the that this uh, self-erecting tower system and the uh, rotor nacelle assembly system will work in practice. So Joel, uh, they assemble the tower in pieces, and uh, they have basically an elevator that's hooked onto these three rails that's actually built into the tower itself. So they lift it up, drop a section on, go back down, put another one on, lift it up. Get, so when they get to the top, that's where things get really interesting. So because now you got to put the nacelle and the blades on all at one time. There's really no cranes, no big cranes involved in this tower nacelle assembly. It's, it's like a regular medium-sized crane. So the, the last bit is they take the nacelle and they kind of hoist it up on the side of the tower and they horizontally pin in the blades. One, two, three. Okay. At that point, the whole assembly starts crawling up the side of the tower with the nacelle and the blades attached. As it gets to the top, it sort of lifts up. It's kind of like uh, the Viagra of wind tower assembly processes. And it sets this tower right on top. The cell goes right on top. That's it. So I'm, I'm coining that term, by the way. The, bl the blue pill of... The blue pill of wind turbine assemblies. I like it. Um, so there's a couple of questions, uh, thoughts here. Now, now you've thrown me off. But... Um... That's a first, because usually Joel is, is crushing me somehow with some weird reference. The the one thing I think, the first thing I think about when I watch the video is, is this capable, are we able to do this? Okay, the tower could be agnostic. The tower is built by, you know, has a sense when it has the triple tower thing or the triple rail system. But does the nacelle hub spinner blades, is does that need to be of a specific design as well? Because what I'm, what I'm worried about is, is it's tipped. Are we are we pinching bearings in there? Are we doing anything goofy as it gets moved and swung like that? That's a good question. Maybe I'm not so concerned about the blades, right? The blades or the hub or the actual nacelle, the actual nacelle itself. I mean, everything is bolted down in there. If it's tipped 90 degrees and then it's that's not a big deal. But I'm worried about the, you know, we know that there's certain platforms that if you let them sit idle for more than 24 hours, they can end up with divots in the pitch bearing or in the in the hub bearings. Right. So that's that's how sensitive some of these systems are. So now if you're tipping them 90 degrees and then rotating them through that that uh, angular range as you put the nacelle on top of the tower, that could that affect the, the bearings? Does it need to be a special design? Is it a certain kind of tur can we do this with every turbine? Right. Can this be a Vesta's whatever or, you know, a V150 or a, a GE 2.8 or can it be, you know, does it have to be a Nordex? N149. Like, what does it have to be? Um, I don't know that. I don't see. I don't see any materials that tell me that either. They're looking to finish this first demonstrator project. Uh, they're going to start construction at the end of this year and do testing for the following year. So they'll finish up testing at the end of 24. And the whole goal is to get to a 15 megawatt floating offshore wind assembly project. That's where it's going. It, in a sense, to make the ships cranes smaller non-existent uh and maybe it's a good idea yeah i don't i'm sure i don't think this makes a lot of difference right that you have cranes that are available you can be everybody knows how to do that offshore 
a little bit different. This may be a really interesting development for offshore because it would, in theory, maybe drastically lower the cost of an installation. The fun thing to track your elements that we talked about offline as well is, you know, we were talking the other week about blade robots and how there is, you know, at what level will one of them become, you know, the class of the industry, kind of like what happened with autonomous drone inspections. Now in the last six months, we've seen a bunch of these different kind of solutions come out from, you know, we have like the lift, uh, lift works. There's the, this, this company, that company, there's SenseWind. Um, so there's all these kind of different designs and everybody's playing around with these. So it, will one of them become the class of the market or will it be, it's not as transportable, right? Like when, when drone inspections came out, it's easy to throw a drone in a Pelican case, get a carnet for it and jump across borders and inspect turbines all over the world. Uh, th a piece of equipment like this or something specialized as far as a lift, maybe more geographically limited uh, based on where you are, where you're developed. Like if you develop in the UK, you're probably going to be working in the UK for a while before you've got it um, really nailed nailed down before you export it to other countries and whatnot. So uh, interesting to see who's, who starts soaking up some market share here from the classical crane, crane companies with these different solutions. Well, it feels like you need SpaceX kind of money to do a project like this. You're, you're talking about re-engineering a good part of the way wind turbines are built which is what SpaceX did, right? SpaceX tossed out the conventional rocket concept and built their own and launched it the way they wanted to launch it and landed it the way they wanted to land it. Now we're talking about assembling wind turbines in a particular way to save in the overall cost. That's a great idea. It's just, do you have the funding to get the project to the end? And a 15 megawatt turbine is a very expensive item to be playing with. Is it worth the risk? I think it's the risk calculation. If you're not spending your own money to evaluate that risk, you may not get a lot of, of uh, OEMs that want to play along in that. Yeah. So if you look at um, who SenseWind has kind of on board, uh, I know quite a few of these companies uh, have either worked have either worked with them or know people, um, decision makers at them. So Holder Marine is out of Aberdeen, Creatus, I know out of Denmark, Exodus is a great um, renewables consulting company, the ORE Catapult is involved, uh, Subsea Micropiles, I know a whole bunch of their senior leadership team, but I don't see where they fit into this as much. Um, but they're, some of the funding is coming from uh, Innovate UK, Carbon Trust, Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, like so a lot of there's some federal money behind this thing too. So good job on raising cash. It's a great idea. And I think if implemented, it could work. It, it's just in this weird economic environment that we're in at the moment where in the U.S. the Federal Reserve is keeps ratcheting up interest rates. It's going to be hard to fundraise for a project like this worldwide. When the U.S. does it, it, it hurts. The difference here is a lot of their funding is coming from the, from the federal government of the U.K. rather than private industry. It's, it's one to watch, and I think they have the right team. I, I was on their website. I've been on the website a couple of times now. They have the right people. It, it, that appears to be in place. It's just a question of you know, the economics, right? And part of any business is timing. Everybody will tell you. You could have the greatest idea at the wrong time, and it just doesn't work out. They have a really good idea. It's just that the economy isn't going to be on their side at the moment. Maybe it will in another year, and... By 2024, they get this thing figured out. They get a demonstrator working and boom, it just explodes because they have the right concept. Yeah. The tough thing there is as well as I've been involved in innovation for a lot of my career is getting that person 
that one decision maker to take a leap of faith and use you. Right. So like you said, if 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 they're looking at a, if someone and some developers looking at an offshore wind farm and and the cost is going to be a, a billion dollars, but that billion dollars turns into 800 million by using this is 200 million dollars worth the risk of failure. That's the problem. Right. Because you still have to, you still have to have a jack. Like if you're going to put this out there, you still almost need to have a jack up vessel and cranes and stuff at the ready in case it doesn't work. Um, that's the, you know, the way when a lot of these programs work. So, um, but it, it, but it has that possibility, right? It has that possibility of really reducing the, uh, cost of installation. So, uh, hope, hope it works. I hope I like it. I hope so too. I hope it does work. Our wind farm of the week is black rock wind farm in West Virginia. Now that's a farm operated by Clearway energy group and it began operation in 2022 uh, one of the unique things about this wind farm, it has 23 Siemens Gamesa wind turbines, the SG 5.0 145s. Those are big wind turbines for onshore project. Uh, BlackRock created uh, 200 union jobs uh, and 12 permanent operations jobs. And they're doing a lot of things in the community. Clearway is here. Uh, they've been hiring graduates from the local uh, community college and technical college and recruiting locally, of course. And they set up a BlackRock Community Benefit Fund, which donates uh, $50,000 to local nonprofits each year. And as part of this project, obviously, they're going to pay taxes. So Clearway will pay about $15 million in taxes to the state of West Virginia for the life of the project. The power is delivered to AEP Energy and Toyota Motor Sales USA. So they got some PPAs in place. Nice job, everybody. Uh, Interesting project for West Virginia. Uh, there's more to come, but congratulations to Clearway Energy Group, our bland Black Rock Wind Farm, our Wind Farm of the Week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, and we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.